Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of Channel 33 is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, Channel 33's gaming podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, we're 100% synchronized. It's Jason Concepcion. Hey, Jason. Nothing is true, Ben. Everything <laughs> is permitted. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Assassin's Creed. Later in this episode, we're going to talk to Chris Plant from The Verge about whether this was the year of first-person shooters and how we even got to the point that we could have that conversation. And in just a little bit, we're going to welcome a couple of our colleagues to talk about movie video games in general. But first, we are going to focus on one specific movie video game that just hit yes. theaters. And <laughs> we have both seen this movie. You wrote about it for TheRinger.com. I paid my $20.75, which is how much it costs to Oof. see a 3D movie in Manhattan, and I set aside my hour 55, and I saw Assassin's Creed. On the bright side, I didn't have to collect any flags or feathers. A couple days ago, before the movie came out, Ubisoft's Assassin's Creed brand director was talking a pretty big game. He said, I think it's going to be a milestone movie. He said there's wow. going to be a before and after Assassin's Creed movie for sure. Well, so listen. here we are. We're in the after Assassin's Creed movie. How does it feel? Uh, I feel that the world has changed. I've had uh, <laughs> the veil has dropped from my eyes, and I'm seeing things in a way that I've uh, not seen them before. Uh, mainly, I'm seeing them as muddy and without enough contrast to make out the action scenes. And uh, I mean, listen, no one was expecting uh, Citizen Kane here. Okay, except for Assassin's Creed <laughs> brand director. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know this is a bad movie. Yeah, it's it's not atrociously bad. No, it's just a bad movie. It's a bad there, movie. It's a normal there are yeah. movies this bad regularly all released. the time. <laughs> you can see a movie this bad any day of the week. Uh, what makes it interesting is it's got a, a long line of IP behind it. Yeah, a extremely complex Dan Brown meets Scientology kind of lore. Yes. That is translated to the screen. <laughs> Such a long line that you and I stopped doing that line yeah. very early on. I think we we ejected from Assassin's Creed. I cut out after Assassin's Creed 2. You started and stopped 3. Yes. And that was it for us. <laughs> so Well, I, I should say that I enjoy. I thought 1 was bad uh -huh. because... The best thing about the game is running across rooftops and assassinating people, and you right. just didn't get to do it enough because yeah. you were constantly like back in the present slash future or whatever doing stuff that you didn't want to do. Yes. Mm -hmm. The second game I thought was very good. It ends on the absolutely preposterous note <laughs> of you fighting the Pope as the final <laughs> boss, and it's not like it's a long it's a long fight. There's several stages to it, and, and, and you know it ends up with you just throwing hands with the Pope in this. And it's not a young Pope. It's not. A, he's an older dude. <laughs> Rodrigo yeah, Borgia. That's about how much sense these games yes. make. So the, the material, there's a lot of material, but 
I don't know that it is the highest quality material to base a, a movie around. I mean, the elements seem like they should be there. They're assassins and Templars and time sure. travel, and it all sounds like good movie fodder, but it never really made Tom a Tom Hanks of just sense. signed on for this, for whatever it is. He doesn't even need to hear anymore. <laughs> He's yeah. about to he's about to make this movie, whatever you just pitched him. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this movie is directed by Justin Kurtzel. It stars Michael Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard and it's like a tour of 2016. There's Charlotte Rampling reprising yes. her creepy role from London Spy. And Michael K. Williams basically plays Freddy from The Night Of, who was also an assassin. <laughs> and these guys just show up. And our dude Desmond Miles is nowhere to be found. None. He is, no. he is not in this movie. He has been replaced by Cal Lynch. And there's a, a quote early on in this movie. Marianne Cotillard's character says, if you listen to me, everything's going to make sense. And she I lied. That, and I thought, I have played Assassin's Creed. and This is not going to make sense. Yes. But it could have been salvaged regardless if, as you have pointed out, the action was good or even comprehensible or, or visible. But that was not really the case. Yeah, I mean, I think the main, the main problem, I think we'd agree on this, is the cinematography. You know, people criticize Marvel movies' cinematography for not uh, having blacks that are deep enough that pops so there's not enough contrast. But the thing with the Marvel movies is there's some bold colors there so you can see what's the action that's going on. Yeah. With this movie, I, it obviously makes uh, a thematic sense that a 15th century uh, city would be kind of swathed in smoke from cook fires and things like that. Sure. But the effect with the kind of very washed out color palette is you just can't see anything that's happening in this movie. <laughs> and everybody's wearing, you know, like very dark cloaks with similar outlines and are running through shadow. And it's like, you just cannot tell who's fighting, who's doing what, yeah. who's chasing who, what just, ha it's impossible to understand what's happening. <laughs> if your favorite parts of Assassin's Creed was wandering around the hallways of Abstergo, you're going to love this movie because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of that. And this movie just like never really synchronizes with itself all that well. Like as there are in the games, there are the two different timelines and everything, but they never really just let you live in the past, which is the fun part of Assassin's Creed. Right. You know, like it's constantly cutting to Michael Fassbender because he's the star of the movie, I guess. So even when there's an action scene in the past, it will cut away to Michael Fassbender, who's like making the same motions in the present as if just to remind you that he's <laughs> he's there too. Yeah. So <laughs> it never really just kind of lets you enjoy the good parts of Assassin's Creed games. And it just focuses on the boring parts, really, and the incomprehensible parts. And as we were just discussing off air, it is very dark, not only visually, especially in 3D, but tonally oh, just yeah. fassbender whisper growls every line no one smiles unless they are humoring someone as you were saying it starts on death row and that basically sets the tone for the rest of the movie yeah uh, kurtzel previously worked with uh cotillard and uh fassbender in an adaption of Macbeth. yeah and that gives Gotta you get the and, team and, back together yeah and it gives <laughs> you the idea of the, of the kind of uh of the tone of this movie everything is just like this constant feeling of encroaching existential doom, like with this <laughs> pulsating synth ominous patch that's like going underneath it. It's just every yeah. and every line of dialogue is delivered as if this is this is the end. 
listen to <laughs> right. what I'm telling you or we will all die. You know, it's yes. like, and it's just so serious. And that's why, spoiler, for anyone that doesn't want to know what happens in Assassin's Creed. <laughs> yeah. Turn away now. Yeah, fast forward. Fast minute. forward. The MacGuffin of Assassin's Creed, just like the games, is the what apple of, what is it? <laughs> the apple of Eden. The apple of Eden, which is... <laughs> Some you don't. It's just they need to find it. Okay. Yes. Right. So it turns out that the person that has the apple of Eden or that was in possession of it back in the late 1400s was uh, Christopher Columbus. <laughs> sure. And when this is revealed, <laughs> it is it just drops with this intense seriousness, <laughs> like. If someone told me, oh, guess what? Guess who has this thing? Christopher Columbus. You'd be like, oh, the, wait, the Christopher Columbus? <laughs> like, but nobody reacts like that. It's just like, yes, where is he buried? We must find him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned that people laughed in your theater. Yeah. There were not enough people in the theater with me to make much noise. But if there had been, I'm sure they would have also. And and the assassins give Christopher Columbus the apple and tell him to basically bury it with himself <laughs> so <can't>... that <laughs> it's not like, hey, Christopher, we know that you are traveling across the world. You are going to discover America or, or what you think is America. So just drop the apple in the ocean <laughs> right. at, at some point and, and that'll be that. <laughs> it's bring it back to Spain and have it buried with you where people could find it. But I mean, yeah, that if the movie like poked any fun at itself or yeah. was... And, know, just like, even a little bit. Does. So this does not change the reputation of video game <laughs> movies. <laughs> there is an after Assassin's Creed movie, but it is a lot like the before. So not that much of a milestone, I no. wouldn't say. No, the world has not changed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, based on how the movie ended, it seemed like they had high hopes for a sequel, which after seeing it, I'm not sure I share. All right, so to figure out why this seems to be a constant problem and why there really hasn't been a good video game movie, we're going to welcome in a couple of our Ringer friends who haven't seen Assassin's Creed yet, but have seen Assassin's Creed review scores, which is why they haven't seen Assassin's Creed. <laughs> so the first is uh, the Ringer's main movie writer, Cam Collins. Hey, Cam, how are you? Hey. How's it going? Good. Hey, Ken. And we're also joined by a former presidential speechwriter and a TV writer-producer. He's also one of the hosts of the Keeping It 1600 podcast. And on this podcast, he'll be playing the role of seasoned Hollywood insider, John Lovett. <laughs> hey, John. Hey, guys. I got to yeah, – what's up? Hey. Let's, do, let's do lunch. You know? Hey. <laughs> I got I to gotta go. I'm driving through the valley. Let's circle back around to that. We'll have our people call yours. Yeah. Whatever happened to the Bruce Willis of it all? All right, sorry. That's just it. I'm done now. I always do one too many. <laughs> so I, I wanted to have you on because I heard you a couple of weeks ago on a former guest of ours, Chris Sullentrop's podcast, Shall We Play a Game? And you brought up the fact that when you're out there in L.A. having your ear to the ground of the entertainment industry and all, you have heard people talk about video games as sort of a, an untapped market for movies. So do people look at it that way? Like, do they think, wow, there's a gold mine here? Or do they look at the titles that have been tapped and how they've turned out and say, no, we will never get into this? Well, look, uh, no one in LA is afraid of making the same mistake twice. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, but uh, 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 I think there's like two groups of people. I think there are people who love video games and would like to see the, their favorite video games uh, become movies. And there's challenges to that process and lots of like, I think, great 
movie great games that have become passion projects either don't happen or they don't always turn out well like i know that there's been you know a portal movie in development forever and there's been a bioshock movie in development forever and then there's the i think more common version which is la searching for new content like a kind of a borg-like entity uh, <laughs> uh, desperate to add new insights uh, to its collective and be absorbed uh and i think that's a lot of people like I don't know. I heard people playing this thing called Assassin's Creed. The kids love it. It's ki- it hits in all the demos. Let's let's get let's get let's get uh, you know let's get the guy from Prometheus and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So Jason thinks that this is maybe the best video game movie. It's currently at twenty two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Sorry, twenty percent. It's, it's twenty two for twenty two me... for top critics. So the <laughs> the people with more refined taste yes. enjoyed this two percentage points more. So before we start bashing video game movies, does either of you want to make a case for any video game movie? Is there have you ever seen a good one? <laughs> I don't know that I would make this case, but I would just like to say that uh, Resident Evil, (gasps) which one? Retribution, I think, has some pretty serious defenders. I've seen it. I actually kind of enjoy it, Um, but I don't know. Is that too far down that like it is a video game movie, but I don't know if that that entry in that franchise specifically has any strict ties to to the games but i think that one's actually pretty interesting weirdly meta it's kind of like the west craven video game <laughs> movie i guess uh which is i think what i like about it i i like mila jovovich i think she's one of our greatest action stars i also think that it's not a really tough crowd i saw warcraft yeah. mm. i saw hardcore henry mm-hmm. um mortal Kombat movies are technically i guess video game movies too uh yeah. i have to go pretty far I was back gonna, i was gonna say the first Mortal Kombat movie is horrible, but maybe just horrible enough to be kind of excellent. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, as look, I, I don't prepare for the podcast. I hope so I'm certainly not going to prepare to be a guest. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, I, so I quietly Googled uh, as we were talking video game movies. It is a graveyard. It's wow. A graveyard. <laughs> yeah. really, I mean, it really is. I mean, you're talking about a genre that's dominated by uh, Uwe Bull and the other Paul Anderson. Not the not the good one. <laughs> well, it's you know it's weird because when you Google, it's it's funny how many of the I think standout entries in the genre video game movies are from the '90s. I would have expected. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like between like Street Fighter, Super Mario Brothers, Mortal Kombat, Laura Croft. I guess was 2001, but still closer to the '90s than to now. It just it's it's odd to me that the good ones haven't resurface like why aren't there new good ones there there are better games you know you know what i'm glad i'm sorry i just want to say one thing because you, yep. you reminded me of it the super mario brothers movie is pretty come on it's <laughs> pretty great. guys it's great no 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 you're wrong it's great i have fondness for that movie i have to say can i proffer a theory and, and then have you guys comment on on this is my theory on why video game movies suck and why they're structurally hard to do it's not the directors because Duncan Jones is a fine director. Mike Newell has has some legitimate bangers in his IMDb catalog, sure. uh, and then you know he would go on to do Prince of Persia, which decided that Jake Gyllenhaal is a good Persian. Uh, <laughs> and it's not and it's not the and it's not the writing or the underlying game because some of these games are you know like Hitman is a great iconic game. Uh, Warcraft is an incredible game experience. I don't think they're picking the wrong games. I don't think they're picking the wrong games. I don't think it's the talent. I think it's two things. I think the interactivity of games 
makes the adaption of story difficult. That's one. And two, mm. because games, especially at the level where, you know, the business people would want to adapt a game of like, it would be, tr you're talking about triple A games when you're going to adapt a game. And games at that level are basically IP for IP's sake. You know, it's not, they're not auteur driven things. And so they're owned by corporate entities that do not want to see them diluted in any way. So it's, they, mm. they give you very little latitude to adapt, to truly adapt, you know, no matter who the director is. So, you so your theory, theory, your theory of why video game movies are bad is capitalism. Yes, essentially. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, I almost wonder if uh, the best kind of video game movie is just not going to be it's going to take the premise of what a video game can a video game movie can do but not be based right. on a video game. So if you take something mm -hmm. like Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim, something I remember about that movie was that the CGI of the kind of kaiju fighting robots that people were occupying in that in that movie felt very video gamey to me. And the premise of kind of this uh, monster role play felt interesting in that way, like more interesting than just being a a monster movie. It was a movie about role play in a way that I think seems relevant to video game movies, but that movie's not based on a video game. It doesn't have the problems of IP. It doesn't have the problems of a corporate overlord, you know, needing the, the, the movie to look or feel a certain way. It can be a movie that takes some of the same questions and does something that maybe these video game movies should be doing, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one other, one other thing, Westworld also, by the way, to your point, sure. is a video game mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But one other thing I was thinking about too is, you know, a lot of great games, the main character is, is a lot, in a lot of ways, a cipher because you're playing the main character. And also, uh, a lot of times you don't know where you are as the main character, whether it's, you know, Bioshock is a good example of that too. And part of that is because you're the protagonist and you're figuring it out as you go. And so you get to have these revelations, but it's a bit different when the protagonist is represented on screen and all of a sudden they have to have your experience of, of either not knowing something or coming to understand something or or being a full-fledged character without without you seeing through their eyes. And I think that does make a translation problem. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cam, do you see visual hallmarks more and more in movies that you watch and you think, oh, that's video gamey? Like, I guess the, the go-to example would be Edge of Tomorrow. But do you sure. think that, you know, if it hasn't worked out so well in actual adaptations people are maybe appropriating the look or the aesthetics of video games in movie making yeah i, I mean i do actually i mean I, I would actually i would love to see more of that actually you know I, I would love to see on the whole i think that cgi spectacles could be more interesting and more freeform and i think that's something that video games seem to be better at i would love to i'm thinking a lot about the movie hardcore henry mm -hmm. which mm. is not a cgi spectacle in the same way as um like warcraft or whatever it does try to embody role play in a very surrealistic and weird way uh, i i i'd rather see more of that i'd rather see more movies that i don't know emphasize the real a bit less that's the game i think it, that's what video game movies are really video games rather really good for it's like you you don't have to be tied to reality. You can do anything. You can be anything. Seems like movies aren't quite there. Yeah, there is. There is. A, there's a meta uh, thing that happens in the Assassin's Creed games, which are games that I some of them I like and some of them I hate. But you know, there's this. You play a character who is time traveling through his own DNA back in time to who is controlling another character. So there's this whole meta control 
commentary, uh, and it's you can't really do that in game in in movies, you know. So it's hard to create that, and, and like they hardcore can barely, Henry, come I think, on, they can barely do that in the. I'm sorry, they can barely do that in the game. I mean, it's just the stupidest thing. <laughs> I hate that. It actually it's like the worst aspect of those games. Like like, why do I got to be in some kind of future office? I don't understand. <laughs> this is stupid. I'll just say it. Sorry, I inter- I interrupt. That's also something That's right. I do. Keep going. <laughs> well, I mean. Part of the bit is, Jason might be right that it's not mainly bad choices about which games to adapt, but there have been some odd choices about which games to adapt, whether it's the Angry Birds movie that came out this year. Or oh, I forgot the, about that. The forthcoming Tetris trilogy, which yeah, doesn't yeah. seem like, I mean, I get that there is name recognition there and maybe that's all you need, but there is not a lot of lore to you, the You try telling Tetris. that story in two movies. <laughs> I mean, why are those blocks falling out of the sky? Yeah. We don't know. Maybe, maybe there are two movies there. <laughs> but it is weird. I, I mean, I guess that's just a larger trend is just anything recognizable you snap up and make something out of it because people have heard of it and so that helps it break through all the the noise of all the many competing properties did any of you see warcraft this year yes what did you think uh i thought there were like there were certain parts that were kind of interesting but it was just overbaked and uh, you know that's one of those games where the player's experience is so much about what makes that property exciting and emotional it's like the shared experience between people raiding a dungeon killing some mystical beast you know and the lore of warcraft is kind of i don't i think like you know a lot of times people ignore the video game lore to an extent they take what they want from it and they leave the rest and Mm. you can't do that in a movie and i you know it just was not a good movie yeah, it's like it's it feels like a world building problem. The kind yeah. of thing that you can do in a game like Warcraft is just in a movie you're going to have a narrative. You're going to wind up with a movie that's going to feel like it's in the tradition of like Lord of the Rings when in the game it's like getting to explore um being active these things you just really can't imitate that. And I don't think we've come up with like a movie form or structure that has that same sense of play. It's literally just a sense of playfulness that's just missing. It's it's weird. It's I don't know. Yeah, it's also a little bit too that um, some of the some of the some of the games that that they adapt, like what makes them great games, is the fun of playing them and the and the mechanics, but not necessarily like the story. And I don't. There, there have been lately, I think, more cinematic games. I think of like The Last of Us is a good example of that, where actually lends itself to being a movie in a way that's more obvious to me because it plays a bit more like a movie uh, and it is, it is a, a narrative story that, that lays out and you kind of move your way through it. And the gameplay is really fun, but, but the story is essential to that. Mm-hmm. The last of us is a good example of, of kind of the roadblocks in this particular space because it's currently in development hell after some buzz uh, after its announcement. And like you said, it's a very cinematic game. I think that particular game brings up another issue, which is like this a, a pacing issue. You know, if you play a game, you have to be continually doing things. You know, if I, you may not notice over the course of The Last of Us that you killed 450 people, but you probably did because that's what was necessary to keep you engaged in the game. Obviously, you cannot create a movie about a 14-year-old girl who kills like 300 human beings and a thousand zombies. You know, like, you gotta figure out a way, you gotta figure out a way to pace that differently. And I think that's one of the issues. I don't know how you solve that problem, but. Uh. 
What do you guys think about that? I mean, I think it's smart. I think you're right. I think it's actually more, honestly, it's more of a problem with video games. I mean, there's a, it's, it is, there is that constantly that tension between the quality of the story and then the murderous rampaging main character who you embody. Uh, and I think that's really, a, it's actually less a knock on the adaptation problem than it is on the kind of expectations we have. Like even yep. I think about like some of my favorite games and their, <laughs> the body counts are extraordinary and they exceed anything. And even the most like, ridiculous Arnold Schwarzenegger running man 80s action movie. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that I don't know how hard I really should be rooting for a video game movie to succeed. I I mean, I'd like it to happen just so there wouldn't be such a a stigma, I think, just because it it probably reflects poorly on video games as a pastime or, you know, people dismiss video games, I think, just because when they get ported to a different audience at the movies, they're always terrible. And so it's easy to assume that video games are also terrible or that they don't have good stories to tell. So that's one reason to root for them, I suppose. But the individual movies, like, I don't really get excited if I hear that a game I like is maybe going to be a movie and not only because of the poor track record but because it's just not that exciting a a prospect to me like we're we're doing a group post for the ringer right now on things we're looking forward to in 2017 and one of the things i picked was the dark tower movie because i've been reading the dark tower books for years and imagining it in my head but i want to see it on a big screen with idris elba and matthew mcconaughey that would be significantly different from the experience i've had with it thus far whereas If something like The Last of Us or Firewatch becomes a movie, then it seems like the best case scenario is that it's just the game without the interactivity, more or less. Like, I don't know that there's anything a good video game movie could do that the good video game didn't already do, but maybe I'm missing something. Well, what you're saying is reminding me that there are those Final Fantasy movies. Right. Yes, yes. I mean, I just wondered what people were getting out of them. Besides, I I always hear about the music, but besides Mm -hmm. that, like uh, these are movies that also go out of their way to look exactly like the video game. What are people getting out of it if they can't play? Um, If they're not a part of the narrative, if they're, you know, what is it, what is it doing for people? I guess maybe you're you're getting some backstory or extra story if they're not straight adaptations of the games. You would be finding out more about the universe, that sort of thing, which if you're a, a Final Fantasy person is exciting. But if you're <laughs> if you're but if it's just a direct adaptation. But if you're cool, like, you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you're I'm like I'm scrolling through a list of upcoming game movies and there are a lot of really good games that might be movies, but I just don't know that a movie version could offer something that, like, are you guys excited by the idea of seeing a a game that you like become a good movie? Or is it just sort of extraneous if you've already played it? I would love, I would love to see a great version of some of the games I love. But I, but I have to say, like, I don't think we should be as insecure. Like, it might just be part of the problem. You know, look, there are, there are always the people who say like, oh, the book was better when a, when a great book becomes a great movie. But of course, then then things also do go the other way. You guys hear my dog barking? You guys hear yes. that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> hold on one second. Are you killing the dog? You don't have to kill <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm back. I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to just make that point. All I was going to say is, what did I miss? Did I miss anything great? I was wondering I was wondering if you were killing the dog. I, I the dog saying, is don't dead. Do that. Listen, I <laughs> take being a podcast guest so seriously. Uh, and honestly, like this is a dog that should have known better. And uh, RIP. 
Um, <laughs> very sweet. I'll miss her. Honestly, she's a great comfort. She's a great comfort in my life. So it was hard. But anyway, uh, like, look, there are, there, are, there are great books that become great movies. No one ever says like, wow, the novelization of that movie was, was really awesome. And part of this may just be that this, these are not, it makes sense, you know, a book is a, can be a lot like a script and can become a blueprint for a great movie. But maybe a, a video game and, 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 and a movie are not equal forms in the sense that to go from a video game to a movie isn't about adding something, it's about taking something away. And mm -hmm. that may hurt the process. And, and, and the fact that I think video games have a certain stigma in terms of the quality of the storytelling and the writing is, I think, sometimes earned, but, but more and more it is not earned, it leads me to not care that much. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> I think they should make uh, Papers, Please into a movie. I've been thinking a lot about that, actually. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. I'm, especially now. I think that we could really use a Papers, Please movie. <laughs> yes. Papers, Please, for, for those who don't know, you play a, uh, a border guard uh, working at uh, like a passport crossing point in a fictional totalitarian state where people come up to you and you have to check their papers against certain rules and decide whether they are allowed to enter or not enter the state. There's that, uh, do you play that VR game, uh, keep talking or you'll explode? Or I may have said that wrong, but uh, that also- I have not. Yeah. We're trying to get uh, someone to send us a VR rig because- <laughs> You just got to keep talking about how excited you are and how much- uh, we, are, we can't wait to, we can't, you know, I think it's the, you know, it's the medium of the future. You guys think The Witness would be a good movie? I don't think so. <laughs> no, The Witness, no. Uh, a, a video game about how you wander around a landscape and feel dumb because you can't solve a puzzle? Yeah. I no, think that although... would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Papers, Please would be cool. That sounds like more of a Keeping It 1600 podcast topic. Sure. sure. Um, all right. Well, there's always the Angry Birds 2 movie, which is wait. coming in 2018. So we can hold out hope for that. Oh, I thought so you, you were can joking. find John oh, no. on Keeping It 1600 on Twitter at John Lovett. You can find Cam at The Ringer and at Melville Matic. Always good to talk to a couple fellow Northeasterners who pronounce Mario the way I pronounce Mario. Thanks, guys. Thank you so Thank much. You. All right, so we will be back in just a minute to talk about the first person shooter renaissance with Chris Plant from The Verge. Today's episode of Achievement Oriented is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. If you enjoy basketball, you need to check out the Ringer NBA show, where every week the Ringer's Chris Vernon hosts an all-star cast of Ringer staffers, sometimes including Jason, NBA players, front office personnel, and more to discuss all things happening in the association. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes by going to iTunes.com slash The Ringer or finding it wherever you get podcasts. All right, so we are joined now by Chris Plant. He is a culture editor at The Verge. He was the co-founder of Polygon. Hey, Chris. Hey, how you doing? All right, so we started this podcast not even two months ago, and yet we have already done episodes about Battlefield 1, Titanfall 2, Call of Duty, Overwatch, Dishonored 2, if that counts as a shooter, and sure. there are many more great games in that genre this year that we started too late to touch on, so... You and Sam Byford at The Verge did a dialogue just yesterday about how 2016 revived the first-person shooter genre, and you got into whether it was the best year ever for shooters. So our first episode was shooter-related, so we'll end our year on a, on a shooter-centric <laughs> episode also. So 
Why do you think it was? Because shooters seem to have been in a slump and seemed to be kind of copycat and people were wondering if the genre had any innovation left and then there was this sudden flowering. So how did it happen all at once? So I'm going to ask both of you to kind of like help me process my thoughts. <laughs> sure. I'm still, I'm sure. still like working my way through this. Yeah. But here's like my like kind of wild theory is that at some point in the last, I don't know, like five or six years, people uh, who made video games were like, oh, it's called a shooter. So that's all you have to do. Just make a game where you shoot people in the face, and like it's pretty good at that. And they did that, and a lot of people were like, hey, did you play that game where you shot the people in the face? That one was a pretty <laughs> good one. I think I'll keep buying it. And they, yeah. and they did, and eventually people got kind of keen to this strategy, and they were like, you know what, all these games are kind of the same. And mm. then this year, the, the studios were like, hey, we have, we have to figure out something else here. It turns out that it's not just fun shooting people in the face. So they added things to the games. So Doom, right? Like Doom seems like on its surface, hey, that's a game about shooting people in the face. But really, it's like kind of like a rhythm game. It's a game about it's balancing... Meleeing uh, them in the face. Yeah, meleeing them, getting health by going in close, and then getting away, and then shooting people in the face. There's like there's a hook there that isn't, uh, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hide here until they get exhausted, and then I'm going to shoot them in the face. You look at Battlefield 1, and they finally uh, had this idea where they're like, hey, you know all that fun stuff you can do in multiplayer? What if you did that in single player? instead of just shooting people in the face. And then they were like, you know what? Doggone it, you got a promotion, and we're going to make that game. Same with Titanfall 2. Like, Titanfall 2 is like the, probably the perfect example of this, because each level they were like, okay, so we got the shooting in the face down really well, but what else can you do? Well, you can wall run. Okay, cool, that's a good start. Well, you can manipulate time. Okay. <laughs> which, 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 spoiler, like, you can manipulate time. Time in Titanfall 2. <laughs> that, that, that's like the, the, the hook of the year, right? That yes. like, you're, you're playing a game and then like it pauses and they're like, oh, by the way, press X and like time becomes a false thing. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, cool. That makes sense. Dishonored did the same thing. Yeah, yeah for real. And I, I, and I think that that is what stands out to me about this year. And the games that didn't work are the games that like didn't get the memo. Like I, Mafia 3. Man, I really wanted to like this game that uh, had some some real ambitions, but the core of the game was just another shooter. These levels were like essentially closets where you followed a straight line, and then the tactical advantage you have is that like I don't know some weapons shoot faster than others, and you have like a really awful knife that like guts people like poor salmon. It, it it just that that type of stuff just doesn't really click and play for me anymore. It's kind of why I think Call of Duty Infinite Warfare didn't really find its audience this year, is because yeah. yet again it's mostly just shooting people. And the stuff that isn't like there's there's all these uh, fantastic zipping around space levels that you kind of don't even control. You you hold a trigger and it yeah. pulls you to where you need to be, and it looks beautiful, but you're not really doing anything. And I, and I think that is is the rule for shooters moving forward is like, yeah, it, it, shooting the people is assumed. Now what? Mm -hmm. Although Titanfall didn't sell that well either, right? And it was maybe the, the most inventive. I don't know whether that was just a larger trend that wasn't shooter specific. It seemed like Dishonored and Watch Dogs maybe yeah. fell into that category too. So Yeah, I, I would say was... Titanfall had this crazy like competitor that happened to yeah. be released by the same company. 
Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, if, if I had to point to one disadvantage, it would probably be that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's funny. Doom for me, there's two games that I think are almost like a developer-centric game. These are the games where you're like, oh man, look, look at how clever these developers are. And it was Dishonored 2 and Doom. But for some reason, those games didn't... I like them fine, but I just didn't... I couldn't connect with them in a way where I just kept coming back to them. I, I really enjoyed the, like, the retro uh, simplicity of Doom and also, like, the kind of the, the ruthlessness of the design. Uh, similarly, Dishonored, I think, is just extremely clever. But for some reason, that just didn't... I don't end up playing them that much. I think it's funny that you say, like, they're developer games. Yeah. Because I... I mean, I've been looking through uh, different sites, like, interview developers and get their top ten list. And to me, weirdly, a developer game, especially from, like, the perspective of people who work at AAA studios, is Uncharted 4. Or... Whoa. And this is a less, less good game. Last year, The Order. Do you remember that game? Yeah. Where you like yeah. you like walked around and shooting werewolves? A developer game in my head is like a technical achievement more than like anything else because I feel like people who make games are so caught up in the actual process of it that when they see something that is a technical marvel, it means something to them that it doesn't to the rest of the audience. And I've never, I, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know who. I guess these intricate design games like uh, Dishonored or Four, because I, I weirdly haven't seen that game on like lists from from kind of the year end people. The Order was one of those games. I remember going through all these like uh, NeoGaf different forums and stuff, and that was one of those games where like dev people just couldn't stop talking about the load screens and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh man, the, lo- the these are the best load screens I've ever seen in my life. And, and like that's like sure okay. yeah that's the kind of thing you care about i guess if you are deep inside the industry then you have to figure out how to make those things interesting yourself so one of the things that we touched on last week when we were talking to a couple guys from lucasfilm and ea about upcoming star wars games and we were asking them about what genres they were focusing on or which genres work best for star wars games and they sort of said that genre is more of a nebulous construct than it used to be maybe that you know even (laughs) if it is a space shooter or it's a third person action adventure or something there can be a a whole bunch of different elements that come into that and that's sort of what we saw i think with shooters this year maybe there were lots of vehicle segments there were flying segments in games that you would consider shooters and i don't know if that stems maybe from just indie developers being out there doing creative things and and kind of putting some pressure on the bigger developers to get more creative, you know, sort of similar to what we've seen in TV, maybe when there are a million networks that make scripted TV. And so there are shows that can go to auteurs and creative people who can just do unconventional things. And so it sort of trickles down and it rubs off on kind of the, the big budget games or the big budget shows and maybe that is part of the sudden creativity we're seeing here there's just more options more diversity in the the people making games yeah i wonder if that's it i'm i think i'm a little more cynical about it um especially when like developers or especially publishers say like oh it's we're we're post genre or uh the thing i see a lot more is post story mm-hmm. uh you know yeah. it, it, it's just a sandbox and and you'll tell the story, and then you'll share it with your friends, and then they'll all buy our game. Um, 
And I, I think about that with these games, and I I think part of it is like, yeah, it does come from a place of creativity. I can't be like that negative in my outlook. But I do think uh, a lot of this comes from we need to create giant open spaces with many complex systems that all react to one another because that's what works well on YouTube. Um, and that's what streams well. And very narrow and linear uh, experiences, like the traditional first-person shooter that really became popular in the wake of Call of Duty, just doesn't play to that audience as much. And and there's like, of course, Call of Duty has the advantage of streaming for a competitive multiplayer, but there really is this audience that just devours weird things you do in open spaces. And I think there is a realization that every game essentially needs to have some form of that within it. So I think in, in some way that's why everything has become closer to an open world game. Um, not necessarily because open world makes more money, like Grand Theft Auto, but open world allows for an abundance of player creativity that developers believe will create however many dollars of marketing that they don't actually have to pay for because they show up in fan-made projects. Two of the... Um the most interesting FPS kind of strategies, I think, of the last year have been Destiny's kind of RPG, episodic, very World of Warcraft kind of style looter shooter game that that uh, wants to keep you engaged in the world by constant questing and things of that nature. And then Overwatch, which kind of like eschewed all of like the military style aesthetic that's been so popular over the last 10 years and just went with a really strong team-based dynamic. Do you see either of those two things becoming the dominant kind of style going forward? Um, no, I almost... I, I feel like there we're, we're talking about almost kind of like three entirely different spaces, which is always the trick of like video games, right? right. Like there's sport, but they're also narrative art, and they're also this like experimental place to test out ideas in a safe space. And... I think of Overwatch as like, yeah, that that's a hyper-refined version of MOBA design mixed with like team-based shooters. And do I think like people rip that off? Yeah, definitely. Do I think that there are good odds that everyone who rips that off will be kind of like everyone who ripped off World of Warcraft and that there will <laughs> be like small player bases, but none of them make money? Almost certainly. That's the trouble with those games is like large, hyper-popular team-based games like a sport become dominant. And... People remember football, but people don't remember insert like knockoff brand of football that I'm sure somebody tried. Oh, I, well, Vince McMahon made one, right? With like, oh, the XFL. Yeah, nobody nobody <laughs> remembers the yeah. XFL. Um, it, so I I feel like I I think there will be a lot of people who try to make more Overwatch. One came out like what like a week before or after Battleborn. Yeah, a Battleborn. Yeah, yeah. Bad timing. Um, truly the XFL of uh, first-person shooters <laughs> <laughs> is not going to be something they put on a box. Um, and yeah, I, I think that'll be kind of its own thing. And in the same way, I think Destiny is its own thing of like, it's really cornered this MMO side of the shooter market. So yeah, I, I, I think there'll be lots of ripoffs. Do I think like we'll see major successful versions of those things? No, I, I think like, those things will probably be the kind of pillars of that form. 
So we've been talking a lot about sort of these things that surround the actual games themselves, whether it's the setting or the design or maybe putting a priority on single player as opposed to multiplayer. But the actual act of shooting in an FPS you kind of discuss in your dialogue is largely the same and you're sort of puzzling over why it continues to be so appealing to point a cursor at something on a screen and press a trigger on your controller and have that thing you're pointing at on the screen react to that in some way. It seems very simple and like we should have gotten tired of this by now. So have you come to any conclusions about why we haven't? And do you think there has been any innovation in how that kind of core mechanic works maybe with something like super hot which we haven't talked about on the podcast but was one of jason's favorite games of the year for instance yeah i mean i think we're just all sick and we like to watch people's heads pop like little balloons full of water (laughs) um that's like my big read on it um and i guess i'm part of that because I, i i love these games but yeah there there is some there's something in inside of us that the shooter unlocks by hitting someone in the head i think also it is it's so gross to talk about this. So, like, just like whoever's listening promised that you'll never cut these words out and piece them together is like some type of like murder note. Um, <laughs> but there's like a perfect strategy level to shooting the head in that, like, it's small and it requires some skill and there's nothing to the right, left, or above it. So, like, there's a risk reward to shooting at that versus shooting at the chest. This is really fucked up. Um, but like, but that I think like literally as a risk reward, it's, it's made for games in some weird way of, okay, well, do I put four shots in the part I know I can hit or do I go for one shot in the top spot? So I think that's part of it. I also think it just communicates like a, a blinking red dot, you know, what do you go for? Right? Do you remember the XCOM first-person shooter that got turned into, like, a weird third-person game, like, five years ago? Yes. So, when they were originally making that, there was a trailer that came out, and uh, you were, like, in 1950s Southern California, like, Newport Beach or something, and it's, like, quaint uh, house gets attacked by black goop, essentially, that just morphs. And from what I've heard uh, about the development of that game was that there was no real way for people to know if they were doing a good job shooting it. Because when you get away from something that has a head, it starts to be a little less clear what the goal is or what the target is. And I think that is another reason that people default to humanoid, or at least like creatures with uh, you know, a noggin on them. I do think we're like starting to maybe see people push the... Uh, I don't, I won't say the envelope, but like... Yeah, now now you can like stab people. Like that that seems to be like a big move forward for the genre and or you can like suppress them in terms of games like uh Dishonored. They they're finding other ways for you to engage with a human body other than shooting them. I think something like Superhot is interesting for like people who don't know about it. It's a shooter where time only moves when you move. So if you're not moving, bullets just kind of like barely push through the air and you shoot uh these like ruby red glass statues who are coming at you like uh the bad dudes in the matrix but like does that really change anything 
Not really. Like, technically, one hit kills them no matter where you shoot them, but I found myself shooting for the head every single time anyway. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. How about you? Like, what do you, what do you think? Why, why do you keep playing games where you get to shoot human beings in the face? <laughs> I think, well, I think clearly there's, there's some part of the human spirit that lusts to destroy other people. Like, it's some, <laughs> sure. like and, and wants to, and like enjoys it, you know, like at least wants to practice it doesn't, you know, and so I think games give people that outlet. Certainly when I play, like I play a lot of Overwatch and it's incredibly frustrating, but when it's good, it's like, an, it's a really fun experience that makes you feel like you're part of a team. And it's like, of course there's the whole power thing. And then there's, you know, uh, Overwatch is a great example of what you were talking about where, you don't just have to shoot people. Like I can be a tank with a huge hammer and, and smash people in the face with a hammer, which is incredibly viscerally satisfying when you actually put them down. Uh, so yeah, I think it's obviously like, it's just, it's a power dynamic. It's something that human beings, it's a dark side of, of our nature that we enjoy doing that. Thank God we have this outlet for it. That's my take on it. There must be some of that, but I would say, and maybe this is more because I'm single player oriented and I'm less often playing other humans and getting competitive about it, but I don't feel like I'm satisfying some sort of bloodlust while I'm playing a shooter <laughs> most of the time. I guess I, I could be subconsciously, but I think it's just sort of, I think it was Tom Bissell at Grantland maybe wrote about how shooters are kind of puzzles in a sense and yeah. that you know you're you're interacting with this environment and you are doing it by pressing a button that manipulates other things in the environment and, and it happens to be bullets and blood but you could look at it as something else as just obstacles to get past and you're doing that with a virtual gun but I find that it's easy to pick up and play, right? Like it's yeah. not usually you don't usually get stuck in a shooter. You could have some bad rounds or something, but you're not usually lost, you're not frustrated really. And so especially these days when I don't always have a whole day to devote to gaming and I have to pick up and play in little chunks here and there, shooters are very convenient for that cuz it tends to be short levels or little episodes or checkpoints pretty frequently scattered throughout a level so it's a pretty good pick up and play in short play times and you can always count on some sort of satisfaction at the end of it yeah i'll i'll push back on on the tom thing uh just a little because i think like calling anything in video games like a puzzle is like yes that that's a video <laughs> game like you you, uh -huh. you could literally say that for all of video games or in most things and like come on tom we all read your book we know how much you like shooting things like it's not a secret from us um but yeah I, I i i do agree i think there is a pick up and playness to it and i don't know if that is just i don't know if it's just this weird thing of the games that are made to be blockbusters and that are designed to be easy enough that they are pick up and play also just happen to be the games where we shoot people like, is there an alternate reality where a different genre became popular and all of the money was going into that and it was also designed to be more user-friendly? Like, is is it because of the genre or is it because that's just where publishers are putting their money? Mm -hmm. One thing I find interesting about this about this discussion is that the pickup and playness of shooters is something that's kind of been established through like a shared... Uh, control scheme language over the last 20 or so years. Like if you played a shooter in 1998 once, 
I'll bet you could pick up a PlayStation 4 controller right now and put in the shooter of your choice and pretty much know what to do within a minute and a half of beginning to play the game. And I think that's much like the the headshots thing. It's kind of like this natural uh, shared cultural memory. You know, like the, the headshots thing makes sense. If you, like, children should not play extremely violent video games, but, like, if you put someone who had never played a shooter game before at a shooter, I think they'd understand that if you shoot someone in the head with a sniper rifle, they should die. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and 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 I've heard developers talk about this too as as a as a kind of thing that those are the frustration points that gamers will encounter. Like there's a there's a shared set of expectations within the genre that need to happen. You shoot somebody in the head with a sniper rifle, they gotta die. You know, if you pull the right trigger, that's to fire. And I think that's kind of comforting in a way because it's like really is this shared cultural memory. It's it's a way to take to participate in this thing that many other people participate in in the same way that they are doing it. Man, now I'm just thinking of, did you ever see that game Soldier of Fortune back in the day? Yeah. 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 Sorry, I'm just yeah, having flashbacks to that game awful. where like people's like, you shot somebody in their head and it just kind of broke it's apart like, into like giblets. Yeah, that's like the Sniper the sniper uh, um, series is very much... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. If you, if you hit that headshot, it's like this almost pornographic slow-mo that's just like too much for me. And it goes into like x-ray mode, right? <laughs> yeah. And you get to see like they're like their yeah, their skull through, kind of fracture uh, into their brain. Yeah, it's just way too much. That's like oh, man. Way, the, the just talking is, about this. Yeah, mm. it's not good. <laughs> so maybe we can close or come to a close the way that you did in your article, which is the premise, was this the best year ever for the genre, the built-in debate that that generates? So what did you guys conclude? Have you had any additional thoughts on whether 2016 was the highlight in the long and storied history of first-person shooters? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember our exact years. I, I believe one of them was 2007, which right. was the year that Orange Box came out, which like contained Team Fortress... Half-Life 2 and its episodes in the original Portal. That's and, a great year. Yeah. In, <laughs> that's a great year in one God 4, box, I think, basically. came out that year. Yeah. Either that year yeah. or right around then. Yeah, I mean, that's a great year. Bioshock. Yeah. Yeah, and Halo 3. Yeah, that's that's a pretty pretty darn good year. And, and the difference between that year and this year is, in the case of uh, Stalker came out that year also, which is really incredible. I mean, talk yeah. about a game that, like, completely inspired all of these uh, open world shooters that have become so popular. I think the inclusion of like Bioshock and Call of Duty and Stalker, all those games looking back seem to have created different paths for the genre that I don't necessarily know if I feel about this year. Like this year feels like a really polished version of a lot of different ideas that were happening. But I don't know if, if it necessarily feels like we'll look back on this year and be like, Oh, uh, the same way that we do with a game like Far Cry 2 and say, oh, well, clearly this game inspired all these other things. I think we'll look back and say, well, that was a really good year of good games. Can we convince Ben to uh, play Stardew Valley for a second? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I talk am about convinced. <laughs> I don't need to be convinced. <laughs> you need to play. It's, uh, Chris, I'd like you to comment on Stardew Valley being secretly one of the most <laughs> trenchant commentaries on late capitalism and the economy in media right now. Would sure. you agree with that statement? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, would say, I would say it is 
I would say, like, you know, like, when you watch one of those documentaries by, like, Morgan Spurlock, and you're like, yeah, 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 that guy has a point. It's, it's kind of like that. You're like, hey, hey, look at that guy. He, like, kind of has a point. Uh, <laughs> but do I think it is a very good game? Yeah, you know I do. Um, do I think it has a very uh, disturbing uh, presentation of how relationships work? Like all video games? Yes. Yes, I do. It turns out uh, looking for a fact on how to give Leah the best gifts yeah. is not the uh, the best way to teach the the youth of our nation about uh, love. But but hey, that's that's okay. It's, it is progressive in that you can, I believe, marry pretty much anyone in the game who's single, which is, that's nice. That's, that does seem like an, uh, a thing that you do not get to see in, well, shooters for one marriage there's no time for yeah. marriage when you have so many people to kill <laughs> yeah the thing that that blows me about stardew is it's on the one hand it is a farming simulator sure. uh there are these like secret relationships there's a there's a secretly deep lore to it and then there's like this whole roguelike dungeon crawler thing yeah. that happens that's like it literally can go on forever yeah can, wait can i tell you the one thing that would make this a better political commentary yeah would be if you if you only grew corn and raised uh, cattle, and then like every month you got a subsidy check in the mail. I think well, you that would be. You also can't you can't like slaughter your animals. Oh so there's sure. Whole... I mean that I, that would be a very different uh, and closer to realistic video game. Yeah. Uh, ben, you got to play this game. I will. I promise. All right. As soon as I'm finished mowing people down, I will. <laughs> Do some farming sim. I'm looking forward to it. I'll uh, make time over the break. All right. So I think we will wrap it up there. You can find Chris at The Verge. You can find him on Twitter at Plant. There is a silent E on the end there. Make sure you include it. Oh, my it. God. Oh. You can find my dog whoa, 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 barking whoa, whoa. at the idea of my French last name. But sure. <laughs> All right. Good to talk to you and uh, also to hear from your dog. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Bye. All right, so that will do it for this episode. That will do it for this year. This is our last show of 2016. And my takeaway from 2016, this is the year that Doom actually came out. The Last <laughs> Guardian actually came yep. out. Final Fantasy XV actually came out. And they were all good. Not only do they exist, but they were all pretty good and worth the wait. And VR is a pretty real thing all of a sudden so anything is possible in 2017 if all of these things could happen in 2016 let's hope uh, the world is just like video games <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right are you ready to desynchronize i am okay happy holidays everyone we hope you get all the games you want and we will talk to you in 2017 right